2: Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 680. I am Chris Hardwick. I am here with Kyle Clark and Katie Levine. Hi, guys. We're making the intro special. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Nerdist Community corkboard. Yeah. Events at Nerdist.com.
0: It's where you send them. Stop me or I won't stop. I love that, uh... People are always like, hey, you know that events at Nerdist.com thing? Where's that email? I'm like, come on, guys. Let's put some words together and see what we can do. Also, I've, it's most of my timeline on Twitter at this point. Maybe look through my mentions and <laughs> uh, see how rad. many times I have sent. At Kyle Clark is rad. Yeah. So now that I've said that, I can get five more people going. Like, hey, when's where's that Nerdist address? You Kyle, know, uh, Kyle loves
2: hearing from you, so just I do. Tweet do. at Kyle Clark rad and ask him where the events at Nerdist.com email <laughs> address is.
0: <laughs> it's all so much of my life. <laughs> <laughs> if I were uh, you ever have that moment where you just realize you're dumb, I should tag all of the people in then and then just put it instead of just keeping putting it in copy-pasting? I'm not good at the internet. That's all right, but you are but good at... this guy is, it's Peter Van Pearson, mm-hmm. or Pearson, with an M. Okay. And uh, he, inspired by listening to the show for a long period of time, decided he's been a writer, but not sharing it, you mm-hmm. know, like that Emily Dickinson or something. Yep. Uh, writes H.P. Lovecraft-style weird fiction, mm-hmm. and after listening to Nerdist at some point was like, you know what? I'm going to put my stuff online. Good for him. And so he's got a Wix page. Uh, uh, you wish you'd simplified a little, Advo, so everybody stay with me. P-H-V-A-N-P-E dot Wix dot com slash story dash graveyard. Uh, I would not uh, go through all that stuff if I didn't think his stories were awesome. I'm really proud of you, sir, because uh that takes some balls to put that stuff out on the Internet, because sometimes that Internet full of bags of dicks that are full of dicks themselves. <laughs> the, dicks are are gonna, like dicks the, the dicks are just going to dicks remaining. The dicks
2: are going to try to smack your big balls around. But
0: but Peter, I think you're doing good work there and I've been reading some of your stuff and I enjoy it.
2: Yes, and as so, I said, so Kyle's a snob, so if he likes true. your stuff,
0: that's a good thing. <laughs> Katie, what do you got?
1: Just want to remind people to enter the contest that we are doing with Totinos to uh, perform on our Stand Up Cluster podcast and also open for you at At San Diego Comic-Con. Yes,
2: June 8th, stand-up cluster at Nerd Melt. We'll have Mm -hmm. a ticket link up for that soon. And uh, we're going to have a a slew of... Of fine young comedians. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. And then but one of those people, we we are reserving a slot for this nationwide search. Yes. Uh, So go to Totino'sLiving.com. Exactly. Submit your two- to four-minute video and just a quick little questionnaire. And, uh, yeah, thanks to them for sponsoring this. And we hope hope, hope to find you on the Nerdist Stand-Up Cluster.
0: And thanks, Totino's, for making pizza rolls because they're delicious.
2: Yes. This episode of the podcast is Richard Lewis, who is, of course, I mean – He's Richard Lewis. To understand... I mean, obviously, you know... Oh, he's a very famous comedian. But, you know, a guy like this to me when I was growing up... And, and again, it's one of the craziest things about having this podcast is being able to sit down and have conversations. And it's sort of like that thing Judd Apatow did, you know, where it's just like, I just tricked a lot of my favorite comedians into sitting down and talking to me when I was in high school <laughs> to learn about comedy. I sort of feel like that's what this is all about. And just... Um, he's... He, I don't know. He's so punk rock.
0: He's like, what I want to grow up to be as a comic.
2: He's, he has a lot of the punk rock ideals that you have when you first start doing comedy and then you abandon them. Uh, he still has all of them. And he's super cool, super cool dude. And he has a new book called Reflections from Hell, Richard Lewis's Guide on How Not to Live, available wherever books are sold. But it was a tremendous honor talking to him. I got to talk – I want to, you know, I want to see if I can get him or like Billy Crystal and, and, and to come down and do beta tests. I keep lurking after the mic every Monday. With, there's a beta test going. Like I hope Billy Crystal or the, the last beta test we did was super fun because it was uh, it was me and my friend Elizabeth Beckwith and Megan Nurringer and Garfunkel and Oates. And they all crushed it. Killing lineup, you know. Uh, our audience is like a lot of the same people come back. There's a, a girl named Amy, and she's a baker. And so every week she brings something new. She's like, "Oh, I know you like chai, yep. so I made these little chai, tiny little chai she donuts." Kills it. Yeah, she's killing They're it. Amazing. Thank you, Amy. So yeah, well, the next time I think beta test June 1st is. I think that's the next one that's coming up. But, uh, but Richard Lewis, uh, I, I give you all the salutes in the world. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I believe, I believe you folks will enjoy this. Uh, this is the Nerdist Podcast number 680 with Richard Lewis.
0: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: You. So I, of course I'm wearing a suit from 1978
2: <laughs> You know what though it's a, it's, a, it's a look that works very well
1: for you Well I'm working with Sir Patrick now And I, I do an enterprise thing for him Just to tease him <laughs> You're working with Sir Pat too. Yeah Well I'll see what works best
2: you he's, know, whatever. Uh, he's a very sweet funny man Oh so you know him fairly I don't
1: know him that well but I've God, done He's some amazingly some sort of a... great Yeah. He's so talented and nice He's people so great And the writing is, and we just wrap the first year. And uh, this guy Jonathan Ames is a really, Mm -hmm. god, really fragile, brilliant guy. And he just, he, I don't know, he's the scripts are good as far as I'm concerned. I've been around, you know, I play a shrink, which is like a (laughs) punchline. And I run to some of these younger actors who I don't know by name. You know, they're like on the Big Bang Theory. Sure. Hey, congratulations! They (laughs) go. Oh, Mr. Lewis, don't call me Mr. Lewis, please. <laughs> You're doing what a life you have, you know. I mean, they're said forever and ever. And of course. So good. And I go, and they go, yeah. I'm doing a series now called Buntalk with uh, Sir Patrick Stewart and some really good actors. And what do you play? A shrink. And then they fall on the cement. <laughs> <laughs> you see, what, a, what, is, what am I a punchline? I guess I'm apparently no,
2: but everyone you know, like everyone who knows comedy, knows your act. Like they know what your act is. I,
1: like, but I'm doing it really. You know, I mean, I have to have some affect, or it would be the worst role in history because I'm a Freudian. Yes. So we would had a long discussion, me and the showrunner. Like, you gotta, you know, we have to twer- tweak this a little bit. But you're gonna understand. But
2: you must have. I mean, I assume you probably have a therapist like most comedians.
1: I've had many.
2: So I feel like at this point, you've put in enough hours, you might... I think if you put in enough
1: hours, they actually they actually go, okay, you are now a therapist. I have the best sense memory of any actor for a therapist. I mean, I've been with so many... <laughs> all different types, so... Oh, well, we'll save some of this. One. No.
2: Well, what, what is the best type of therapist? Well, maybe is, you're
1: taping is, this right now. Yeah. Wait a minute. Oh. Is,
2: is, is the best type of therapist someone who basically just says, what do you
1: think about that? No, one's, one that will make love with you and fly away with you is... That's is the, the absolute best kind. Yeah, that kind. hasn't happened. But, Not Because no, it's nothing like... They know you so well, you just feel so safe. You would, I would imagine. Yeah. But I can never tell if... No, you know, asked asking me a straight question. Yeah. But, uh, well, Freudian... I went to a Freudian therapist when I was a kid, when my dad died, and I was freaked out, and I was a comic, and I was broke, and and you lie on a couch just like I do in this new series and uh, blunt talk and I just and and I bring my own couch and they sit there and and Freudians just go mm-hmm, mm mhm yeah and they write notes so I had to do had to, we had to figure out a way to make it a little more uh involved for me as an actor you know otherwise it would've been a nightmare you know and we have but um I like uh, eclectic therapists that uh, they were they use different types of 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 therapies, I, I was in a therapist therapy session um, when I was a, starting comedy. He was Adlerian, and, and he was the father of the inferiority complex. Oh, and it was what a night! Once a week, first you'd go to the the shrink, who had like eight people in his office in Manhattan. Then you would have what we call after group, and we'd go to someone's house, and we didn't. And at that point, I was living in New Jersey, so I said, So let's say they lived in Staten Island. They go, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like Christopher Columbus driving on. And it was like a 12 hour commitment. And then we'd have aftergroup, after group, and then the person who had their apartment had little cupcakes. It was like an AA meeting, probably, you know, coffee. And, and then we'd talk without the shrink. And then we'd have to drive home. It was a whole day of therapy. It was a, it was a horror, really. So I brought Larry David ones because I thought he needed it because he was. I felt that he had some inferiority (laughs) problems. Thank you. And and someone brought me a Coca Cola. It could have been anything. It could have been a bear. Now that I think of, and um, he just couldn't handle the whining of these people just complaining because it was about inferiority. Sure. And he ran out of the someone's apartment and he says, "I don't need to hear this crap." And we chased him down First Avenue for about five blocks, and he hid in a phone booth. And it would have been a great fisheye lens shot of people going, You need us, you need us. And he went, I hate you. And he never came back? No.
2: Was, was there any point where you felt like... Because I feel like when you first start writing comedy, my guess... Maybe I'll ask you instead of telling you what I think happened. Right, but right. it but it feels like when you first start writing comedy, you go I have to do this thing called writing comedy. And then at a certain point, it really just is a part of who you are on stage. I I think. Was there a point where you felt less like you were writing jokes and more like I'm just being myself on stage and this is a form of therapy for me to get all this stuff out? Yeah, did it always it was, feel like comedy? It
1: was definitely the latter, but it does it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, because, um, God, I mean, when I, you know, when I started, I mean, you had to write monologues that had jokes that producers of The Tonight Show would find funny. So you weren't really writing for yourself as much. You were writing for other people. And um, they were jokes. They were one-liners, a good premise, hopefully, with a great punchline and then you needed to have three or four of those monologues back to back to back to back and then they come down if they figured they had you for three or four shots you got booked but after a while that got for me at least it got so boring because i realized that i wasn't writing really things that were really organic to how i was really feeling because what i really wanted to do on stage was to express my fear of uh of me crumbling inside and having people laugh that would validate that. Well, yeah, you are crumbling, but so are we. You know, <laughs> the more they were crumbling, the better I felt basically, and it made me feel less insane. Um, so I started doing more storytelling and more uh, rap, more riffing. And um, it took a while. I mean, you know, there was a mixture for a while, and uh, but now when I go, I used to bring notes on stage for decades, and it would be like, let's say I played a club in San Francisco like three times a year. Every four months, i bring two or three hours of new material, and i put it on a piano. And I knew that I had never said it before. So if half of it worked over the course of, say, six or eight shows, that's like two or three hours. Jesus. And I did that in New York. I did it in Chicago. I did it in San Francisco. So like after about... Five or six or seven years, I had enough television material for the rest of my life. In fact, once Letterman came down to see me in New York at Caroline's, and I was, he was right in the front row. I went, oh man. (laughs) Because I was doing new material always. Because, you know, I, I always felt it was a cool thing doing new material. It was, you know, I was never afraid because I never really felt like a comedian. I felt like, you know, I didn't really have much of an, uh, an upbringing. My father died before I became a performer. My brother was older, and he was in the village, probably, you know, hanging out with the beats. My sister, he loped when I was 12. So I was alone with my mother, who was had a lot of illnesses, and um, so I was pretty screwed up at home. So I needed... I was tethered, like, to nobody. It was like a Chagall, you know, holding on to nothing, a rope to nothing, you know, and... Um, so I really needed the audience. Strangers were really... I used to remember once I used, I used to say, uh, God, I just came from a family reunion, and I'm just so glad to be here in front of strangers. <laughs> and, and I, you know, it's not even that funny, but I really meant it because I just really despised most of them. They just didn't get it. They didn't get me. And uh, it was like me against the world. And so the audience is, was, was really my validation of being a, 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 a human being, really. And I do the same thing 45 years into in my career. Like, I'm going on the road now promoting a new book and a series, and, I'm, and I'll be doing shows. And, and, you know, every time I do Chicago or San Francisco, and a lot of the same people come, I, I force myself. To, now that i don't have notes to look at, I stopped doing this about eight years ago. Some agent and i 've had about three hundred managers and agents they're they 're gone Some of them are dead i 'm <laughs> saying i 'll never have them again i don 't need them i don 't want them i don't i don 't want to wait for them to call me i don 't want to wait for them not to call me i just it 's just so much easier. Good luck you know with you, but I mean I just <laughs> most of them are just it 's just a joke right. And as far in my life yeah. I mean they' you know you know a lot of it is that they're smart and they're and they're really smart and they're good and it's all about money they don't really understand you and they usually have one or two people that are making millions of dollars, and that's where they go right that's where they go like if someone's making ten million dollars on a movie and they're in Manhattan and they don't have a, a broiler they're on a plane getting them a broiler mmm and they don't care that you have you don't have the right suite at a, for a gig in San Francisco. They they couldn't give a fuck, you know.
2: Well, it is there's a little bit of a there's a real I can a little bit of a car salesman kind of a kind of a vibe sometimes with some of, with some with some of them.
1: Yeah, no, some are good. I mean, I, I've always learned something good from my wife. Always said to me, I've been married for ten years, and we know each other for about seventeen. Now she says you always get a couple of great things. Like I got a good lit agent from one guy and one guy who I was with for literally an hour and a half. This was the shortest time. (laughs) He says, why don't you stop bringing your notes on stage? I go, why? I did it in Vegas. I did it in Carnegie Hall. I did it with all my specials. I said, "Well, you know, it hasn't stopped me. I'm doing fairly well in my career. And he says, yeah, but it's uh, it's a work in progress. I went, yeah, isn't that cool? To me, it was cool, but it was more of my ego saying that because if people pay money to see you and they see you have notes down there, now, I must say that those notes took me months to get on that, on that long sheet of paper. It was about five sheet, five feet by three feet. It was like gigantic. looked like the shroud of turn. <laughs> and um, so I, when I would look down, I would look down for a second, then pop up. Let's say it said circus. I knew if I saw it and my eyes would look at the word circus and I would look down for a second, I'd pop up and I could do 20 minutes but now without having that there i can't think i won't remember 20 30 things about the circus i can i, I you know even if i was 20 i couldn't remember but he said that it, it looks it looks cheap to the audience that you're trying things out on them and I, and i thought about it. i went oh maybe as a point so i stopped bringing notes on stage and what what i had to do was like stay in my hotel literally like i was in gitmo and i would because i really care about each show whether it's carnegie hall or a nightclub it doesn't matter the people are still paying to see you and i would just spend really hundreds of hours uh preparing for one show and when i had the notes i knew i would be doing like a new 30 or 40 every show but when I didn't have the notes, sometimes I go, why did I even spend that time? Why didn't I go to the art museum? <laughs> I did five new lines. You know? But that's, my, that's the way I have to prepare, that at least I had looked at all this new stuff. You know. But he was right, though. And I haven't had notes on stage now for over a decade. And my performance level has shot, skyrocketed. Because I'm so afraid when I when I hear my name, because I have no idea what I'm going to say. At least when I had the piece of paper on there, I knew I had two or three hours to look down at. Now I don't know what I'm doing. And I ad lib about half my shows. And that's sort of cool.
2: That's not just sort of cool. That's amazing, because I think it's an idea that most young comics have where they say... Uh, Well, I'm just gonna. I'm never gonna do the same set twice. And you go, well, we'll talk about that in a month and see. And then they all go, oh, I get it. You have to whittle stuff down, and there's a real craft to like making the joke solid. But to hear that you can still do that is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable.
1: Well, listen, you know, it's not as if there are not times when if the audience is not that great. The audience is great and, and I'm ad libbing. I'll just go wherever I want to go and I'll just keep going until they go, oh, you know, and <laughs> you stop. But, you know, it's not like I'm not going to repeat certain areas. Sure. Um, but what I do now is if I'm, if I'm in an area, say, about marriage and they're laughing, I will immediately just hopefully think of th- something on stage that's totally different, that's not written on a piece of paper that used to be written. It's disappointing because a lot of the stuff my wife is disappointed. She says we got to, you know, you we you know, before you like retire from stand up, you have we, you have thousands of pages. I mean, it's a waste. And I said, "Yeah. So what would I be doing? Just giving it away like Gandhi, you know? <laughs> here, here. here. <laughs> what are you going to do with it?" Yeah, go on a cruise and uh, be a hit. I mean, some, of you know, not that it's all gold, but I mean, um Uh, I don't know. I I just... uh, Every show is frightening. Every show is frightening. That's why I never see the audience. I remember I was doing Town Hall, and I said to the guy, I said, I do not want to see anybody in the audience. When I did Carnegie Hall, this was in 89, I walked out there early, and um, I saw it. I went, Wow, this is really a trip, man. And then... I knew I would never see it again because I made the lights so bright that I couldn't see anything. I don't. I just don't want it. Because although most comics will say this, they'll look at one guy going, "Oh, he's Jewish, isn't he?" <laughs> you know, and, or start picking his nose and flicking it, and you know. And then I'll I'll look at one person out of three thousand that is not happy with my show. Oh,
2: yeah. I, that's very standard. You know, right? That's very standard. Yeah. And I, I think... Uh, I've started noticing that if people come to more than one show, I start to get in my head because I'm like, oh, I know they've already seen this joke and I feel really weird. It's like yeah, no, literally it's, one uh,
1: person. Literally one person. I know, no, no. We all have similar feelings about that. Yeah, you and know, I, I remember doing... When you had a... When you were young and you had to do two shows a night and you had to really stretch to do two, like, 40 5 minute sets and then someone... And, and if you didn't have enough material, people would say you're good. We're staying again. No, no, I, I, I have a tendency to murder people. You can't. I might knife you. You don't want people to stay. You know. It's, well, uh...
2: comedy is like a, Like like it's it's not like music where you could just listen to it over and over again. Like a joke is like a magic trick, and once you see the magic trick, oh,
1: god, it's sort music. of music. I'm so jealous. Sing Jingle Bells. Oh, but all right. <laughs> It, it's so much. It. It. You know. I used to despise comedians that were horrific, and then at the end they would sing "America the Beautiful" and get a standing ovation. I go, oh, wait, this is not right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, he sucked, and you know, or, you know, or she did, and she sings a song at the end, and they applaud. People applaud singing. Yeah, there is. A, there's a little bit of a claptrap.
2: Anything that feels like. Oh, that person put a lot of work into that. Sometimes you can see people do it where if they just say a bunch of words really fast, then people are like, oh, that must have been a – even if um, there's not really a joke. And they're like, oh, yeah. wow, that what a feat!"
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. No, I, you're I almost kind of think that
2: maybe – so let's, let's just say sometime, someday you go, you know, I'm ready to retire. What you could probably do – is go to Netflix and go. I'm going to do 12 one-hour specials, <laughs> and you just burn through all of it and just put it up as a stand-up series.
1: That's an interesting
2: idea. And then and then you're done. You're just like purging all of your material, and then you don't have to do it again. I'll also
1: commit suicide after I finish all 12 of them. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's a great. It's an interesting idea. Otherwise, then I won't feel like I wasted all that material that I came up with because I just, I just, it just pours out of me, and I. I always have a pad with me and I write things down all night and uh, I I remember once when I was a kid I used to I used to hate to wake, two things happened that were funny to me, I was about 24 and and I said uh, God I um, I I should get, there were these new tape recorders that you would as soon as you would speak into it it would record, Mm -hmm. I forget what they called it Um, and so I would wake up and I go, I would have a premise I thought I had a premise and then a punchline, and then I go back to sleep. And I knew that then the tape would stop recording. But I didn't realize that I snored so much. <laughs> so I woke up one morning, and I knew I had I said, oh, I wrote a great joke in the middle of the night. And then I put on the recorder. It was like, <laughs> and I had to wait like, like two and a half hours till I got to this horrible joke. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, But worse than that, I was at Shea Stadium, Sold out. Jesus. And I had my pad next to my bed. I was living in this dump. And um, I was killing. It was like the Beatles at Shea, you know. And um, every every joke, they went berserk. And I would wake up, and I wrote the premise down and the joke. I'd fall back to sleep right back into the dream. And I did a, an entire set and I woke up and I had like seventy jokes written on a pad. I went, "I am Beethoven, man. Maybe I am Christ. Maybe I am the Christ of comedy." <laughs> I said, "This is. What if I dream this every night? What if I dream?" Because I killed. I hadn't looked at the pad yet. I might add. And what happens? You know, I am not a psychologist, uh, so I don't know how to describe it. You know, in medical terms, but what I thought was killing in my dreams. We're just these non sequiturs. Like here would be a typical joke that got a sixty thousand people roaring. Blender high, lips. That's what I wrote down. And in
2: the dream world, it made perfect sense. Per- they went crazy, and it was amazing. Yeah,
1: where's the wood? Hi, how are you? <laughs> I mean, it was so disappointing. Well, there's
2: was... no linear thought in your dream. Everything's no. just
1: yeah. It was one of the most disappointing nights of my life. I thought I thought that maybe I was, you know, special. You know, Ludwig van Lewis. You know, or, Mo- or Mozart.
2: It's like it's being dictated by the heavens. Exactly. And it's it,
1: he is a vessel. You are well, a vessel. Well, it never it's not. It didn't happen. <laughs> or, it didn't work.
2: But I think I think you know you never want to. I, I mean, it's very difficult to to do a lot of specials near each other. You know, unless you're Louis or Aziz. But I think. Yeah. Uh, Usually, you don't want to do too many specials because then you go well, then people then the next one, people go well, they just saw that one. But if you are just if you decide like you don't care anymore, I, what an amazing idea to just like do a bunch of them all at once. I could. It, it is a good
1: idea. Just so it lives
2: out there in the. But world. here's
1: the reason why I st- I did a lot of specials. The reason I stopped doing it is because I enjoyed at living sixty or seventy percent of my shows, then working on my. On my set, right? There's something really too working on your set. I used to would love perfecting it, but when you used to do these, you know, all these HBO sets, the directors come down, the executives come down, and they expect us that let's hear it. And I said, I don't want to. Why? I? I said I, I was sort of disgusted. I don't want. I didn't feel like talking about it. Let's say I had a crazy day. Let's say I had a crazy funny argument with my wife and they and that wasn't part of the HBO special. I couldn't do it. And I felt like this is not why I'm on stage. I'm on stage to express how I'm feeling. So I you know, I could have done another four or five specials easily, but I stopped doing them for that reason. I just I got bored. I said, if I'm gonna be bored doing this and I'd rather just uh, just act or write or do something else, I so I, now, you know, I I d I don't I have no interest in doing specials. So no one
2: ever came to you and said, Well look, we'll just we'll book a theater one night, you'll do two shows one night, two shows the next night, say whatever you want and we'll cut together a special.
1: Yeah, they have they have asked me, but you know, there is a little bit of nervousness because when I was so used to working so hard on my specials and you would do the same I mean I do would do two seventy minute sets that were fairly similar. I would add lib a little bit, but you still had to make them pretty close. But they were killer. I mean, the lines were, for me at least, I thought were killer. And if I don't know how I'm going to do, it could be a real. It could be a real waste of time. Sure. You know, even the, the makeup artist might walk out.
2: But I, I, I don't know. I mean, at this point, I feel like you, you have enough experience where your brain is probably going to save you in the I mean it's like you know well, That's nice of you to say. You know it. how to do it, you know. I mean there's probably more of a safety net than you realize there is cuz it's all, you know, it's uh the, the the you've perfected the machine without having to perfect individual jokes. The machine is in, intact and that's, you know, like you could just riff about anything and you get a special out of it.
1: You know, I you know it sounds grandiose. My wife has the same thing. She, I, when I get in there, I said, "I'm playing Town Hall." She says, "You'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, <I'm>, be fine." <laughs> How do you know? She says, I just you're funny. You just just talk. Yeah. Oh God, I mean, uh, it's nerve wracking. Sure. It's not. Ner- I used to be jealous of guys who did do the same set year after year, like they would. La- I'd say I was co headlining with somebody and. I'd be there and be in my my hotel room, and I'd be i order room service, and I'd be looking over thousands of jokes, you know, and, um, and I, well, actually, by that then in my in my thirties, I would have the the this, this sheet of paper. That sheet of paper was my holy grail. I would just memorize it, look over it, like fear of intimacy, fear of intimacy, and look over the fifty things, and then and then whatever subject, family, uh, you, know, uh, you know, orgasms, whatever the hell I had written on it. And, um, so these guys would land, I'd see him in the bar, you know, picking up, you know, picking up chicks, getting loaded and, uh, ordering lobster. I said, God, you're eating a lobster now. Aren't we on in 20 minutes? Don't you, don't you worry about taking a crap before the show? I said, no, 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 I don't care. Really? I mean, you have a show and he's, eh, i will be fine. And the reason they'd be fine, they knew exactly what they were going to do. Yeah. As soon as they entered, walked on the stage, from A to Z, you know. And uh, I remember Leno saying to me once we were at the Improv in Hollywood when we were in our thirties, and he says, "Why are you a wreck, man? Because I was, you know, I was on the doing Carson and Letterman and all that. I said, "Because I don't know what I'm going to do. Don't you get it, man? I just don't." Don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, uh, and I still don't. So every set is kind of a trial by fire. It, it absolutely is. I mean, that's, a, that's pretty amazing. That is a pretty... They're not all great, by the way. I mean, you know, but, I, but they are a trial by fire. That takes a tremendous amount of
2: energy. <laughs> energy? Yes. Of course it does. Oh, oh energy. Yes, yeah. it takes a tremendous amount of energy. Oh,
1: I thought you were saying courage.
2: I it takes right? courage, but oh, it I'm takes a tremendous of amount of energy to... Because, you know, when you, when you kind of get into that mode and it's like, okay, here we go. And then you have to be, you know, it's, you, can't, you can't check out. Partway through your set oh, I'll mm. just do this part And then this part And this part Like mm. you have to be Super engaged The entire time Exactly But that's kind of The art of it I guess as a, It's a different It's a different way To attack it And I haven't heard Anyone else say that Especially some, anyone Who's been doing comedy As long as you have So it's really It's interesting That that's, that's your And I never would have Known that when I watched you When I was growing up I never would have known Like right. Oh that just He just is not Wow
1: Well, you know, they would ask me... I used to have arguments with producers from the talk shows. They would say, what do you want to talk about? I go... I said, why are you asking me this? This is after like 15, 20 years. I go, "Uh, Hawaii, God, my toes and a shirt. Is that good? (laughs) Will that be good enough? But that wasn't good enough because their job, these young producers, whatever they were called... They had to give notes to Letterman and Carson and whomever Conan and you know, all of them, and they had those little notes there, and it used to make me crazy because they would say, "Hey, I understand you in Hawaii," and I go, and I felt like saying, "What are you a psychic? How did how did you know I was in Hawaii?" You know, that's how I felt. I felt it. It sucked away all the spontaneity of sure. of, of the way I worked. And uh, I didn't. I never really felt comfortable. So I ultimately had to tell them, "Look, uh, you can. I'll give you subjects, but you know, if you don't want me back, fine. But I, you know, I'm not sticking to them. I'll, I'll, you know, if I have a funny day, I'm going to talk about it. And uh, you know, they never, you know, I, I never got thrown off a show. If you score, you don't get thrown off a show. Sure, but you know, it takes a lot of balls to." To do that, I guess. And I understand why um I mean I, I don't really understand. I mean, I I it bummed me out a lot of times because I mean it's one thing if you let let's just say you're an unfunny uh actress who's uh, in a soap opera. Then you know, you you know, you don't want just to just sit there and you know, you wanna say, So I understand that uh, you have a pet monkey. <laughs> yeah, oh God, yeah, this monkey chi chi. And then you know that's three minutes. Because when you think about it, you're on they're on for eight minutes the you know the host'll talk four Chi-Chi the monkeys three minutes, and they're off <laughs> oh yeah, I'm doing a movie go oh, congratulations <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Shalman. <laughs> you know, so it's a whole the whole the whole thing is like when you think about it, you're on you if you're doing if you're doing if you're doing one segment you know and i and i and this is something I like to for. Young comics listening to this, I I was really wrong for decades. I remember, like, I would prepare, particularly for Letterman. I did. In fact, I'm going to do a an interview, a two minute interview, I guess, for one of his maybe his last show. I don't know what, what it's for, but because uh, he really he understood me. And in '82, I he, he came. I went into his office, and he said, he says, you know, you know, you do fine on cars and He says, but. He says, "You know, you're too. You're like an animal on stage." He says, "You know, you're 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 you know you're. It, it's not good for the camera." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, it, it, you're all over the joint. You know, like Jack Benny would be the perfect guy to be, look into the lens, but if you're running all over the place, it does look amateurish." And he says, I, "You know, you can come on." He said to me, "You can." Not only did he ask me to write for the show, but he said, "You can come on the show, as often as you want." But never do stand-up again. You'll only do panel. And usually back in the days, those days, you only did panel when you had a series. So I did The Tonight Show because it was, it was Johnny. But I, then I started to do it when they had guest hosts because they would let me do panel. Because mm-hmm. I was better at doing I was like a nutcase, like squirming in my chair. And I never did stand-up again, ever. And some shows sometimes they get new producers. They're twenty two, twenty three years old. Oh no, uh, you have to do stand up. I go I do stand up. I haven't done stand up. I don't want to do stand up. Then I just won't do the show, you know. Because they, it's not this. You know, if if I had, if you had a chance to, I don't want to mention names now, but there was some. I did a great set. A year ago, and then all of a sudden, I was going to come back and promote the series. And they said, "Well, let, can he do six, seven minutes?" I go, "No, six, I'm not going to stand do stand up. What is this open mic night? That's what it would feel like for me." Yeah, a lot of guys like to do stand up. I, I, I don't, I'm, I don't do stand up on television except if it's a special, mm-hmm. and I haven't done those in a couple of years, you know, many years. And, um, but it's not. If I had a chance to, and if I would run into this guy at a restaurant, I go, "Can I talk to you for a minute?" You know why I didn't do your show last year? It's because your producer said I had to do 6 minute stand up. I, I haven't done stand up in 35 years on television. Pretty, I mean, he says they they would probably say they've said that to you. Right. You know. Uh everyone's so afraid. See, you know, the one thing about getting older in this business is that I you know, I, I not everything has been successful, but I've had a great run. I I you know, I've met the right I had the right shows at the right time. I had Letterman only panel and Jamie Lee Curtis for four years. And then I wrote a book and then had a couple of shows that didn't work well. And then Jamie Lee Curtis and then Larry David for 10 years. And now with Patrick, Sir Patrick Stewart and God knows how long that'll go on. He's so wonderful. So I've been lucky. I mean, I was ready, but, um, you know, the agents were afraid to go to bat for you because they have five other comics that they'll if if they go to bat for you then they're gonna and, and, and they're and, and they don't do it in the proper way then they won't be able to book their other clients even if they're act, just actors everybody's afraid you yeah. of, know of losing their job yeah because it's such
2: a volatile you know it's such a mercurial business across every stage that everyone's just shitting their pants all the time
1: you know I mean when I was out here you know I, there was the comedy store and you know and I, and I started the improv actually and uh, and then there was the comedy store and then it, it's just like doing morning shows if there's both on at 10 o'clock if you do one they get pissed off you do right. the other and I used to say you know what happened to the first amendment here I'm, I'm going to I want to talk whenever I want to say what I want to say and wherever I want to say it and if they don't like it, then I won't. Then screw them. And the good news was, like at the improv, and the county store. They, they both owners liked me, and I said, "Look, I'm going to do a set at eight o'clock at your show at your club. And then I'm going to drive in five minutes, and I need I'm doing a tonight show, and I want to do it, my my monologue. So well, you have a problem with that? I mean, because if I just Made them of if I just went on stage for a half hour and I snuck in the six minute monologue, and and, and you're getting paid nothing early on and then seven dollars, the, why the fuck shouldn't I drive across town and do the monologue again? Right. And get six dollars. I it's never not like took, they're paying you for yeah, exclusivity. Yeah, I never took money from them anyway. I would give it to comics who had no money. I just left the money in the because I mean I was already touring and stuff. When you know, and then there was a strike, and then my best friend committed suicide. There's a great book out. If you're a young comic, I suggest you get uh, "I'm Dying Up Here." It's about the rock, the the sex, drugs, and comedy in the '70s, and it's really a it's a it's a real meaningful book. It's really profound, actually. And um, in fact, I hear that uh, they're going to make a movie out of it, and uh, hopefully, you'll play me. <laughs> but uh, I. I I would
2: try. Yeah, huh? I, I could try, but I don't uh, I don't know, I'm not a not am not a great actor. Oh, wow. I just like I like I like I love riffing, but I also love figuring out how to evolve a joke and oh and then I can you know, there's too much talking here if I just if I just break it up in half and put something right. funny here. Like I, I love both processes.
1: Yeah, so yeah. It's it's a great craft. And then it really it truly is a craft. And it's very, you know, there's a lot of comedians now that go on stage and they sell out clubs. And and I'm not, listen, I'm a recovered drug addict and alcoholic for 20 years now. I've been in recovery, I've been sober for 20 years. And there's a lot of comedians who aren't sober, which is fine, you know, it's their pride, it's their life. But they'll go on stage for three or four hours with a bottle of whiskey or a joint. And they'll just ramble. And that, to me, is bullshit. I mean, it's not bullshit to the owners. because the owners are because they have a following. Yeah. Because half the audience is loaded. And, you know, but it has nothing to do with the craft of the history of comedy and how to, and how to write a joke and what's funny, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm an old, you know... Guy, we saying, oh, that, you know, I mean, I love the new, edgy, com- great comedians. I don't, I never really watch a lot of comedians because I don't like to hear premises. I, I'm tragically ethical in this business, which is probably a mistake.
2: But you're worried that you might, yes, re, as a memory, but that's actually something, yeah, and learn. I
1: really don't like that. If someone has a horrible joke about a green turtleneck, I'll, <laughs> I won't talk about green turtlenecks, maybe for the rest of my life, right? But, um, you know, I guess that's a good quality, but I mean, um, but you know, there's a lot of comedians that are lazy, and they're not funny, and uh, and they do abuse the craft, and uh, and I would rather see someone go up there for 25 minutes who has worked on the stuff. You know, maybe they really you know they like writing jokes, they like working on it, coming home, f- hearing it on the tape recorder, fixing it, and doing it better the next night, killing the audience, and getting off then someone up there just loaded for three and a half hours thinking that's, that's stand-up. Did you do that before you quit? Would no. you go on stage? You never went on stage fucked up? Oh, no. I I, I was I was drunk sometimes, but I was... I, and I don't even like the word functioning alcoholic because it makes it look like your life is okay, right? and it's not. But um, I would say only on a handful. I did about 49, 50... 55 Letterman's. Jeez. I would say that maybe a a handful of times I had one too many wines. Dave knew that. I even wrote him a note about it. I wrote a book about it. So, I mean, um, uh, but I I knew, like like when I did Carnegie Hall, I did two and a half hours. That was really some night. It was really a great night. But I had like a glass of wine like two hours before I went on. There was no fucking way I was going to have an excuse if I didn't do a good show. Yeah. So I wasn't high at all. I mean, to me, that was being sober, having a little glass of red wine. I could six o'clock with it. But um, but you know, if it's one o'clock in the morning, and you know, and you know, it's. uh, But no, that I I treated. I was very lucky, you know. I treated. I knew somehow, somewhere in my head, that if I went on stage, drunk. That I would have my life would be over because it was such an important part of my life that stand up. It was my life till I met my wife. Uh, it was uh, the acclaim and uh, laughs and adulation and uh, and it was you know it was sort of empty until someone loved me for who I was and not for what I was and, and not just as a comedian or being well known. Well, do you think that's Do you think that's why you were
2: one of the reasons you were passionate about being on stage? Did you feel like you were kind of searching for the family that you didn't have? That's
1: exactly what. In fact, you know, I I, last year had this. this, this, I'm only mentioning it because I'm not a good plugger, but there was a. uh, It's sort of a cool box set called Bundle of Nerves and has a movie that a couple of indies, and one's called Drunks, which I'm proud of. Oh, yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, and it's in there. It was never out right on DVD. And then I did a movie that preempted Saturday Night Live called Diary of a Young Comic. I was 28 years old. It's pretty trippy. And then there's a documentary of my house in Laurel Canyon, where we're leaving soon. And the house is, was built almost 100 years ago, and every inch of it, every inch of the house... Had photographs I uh, collected. I'm a collector. Had photographs of iconic people. Tragically, most of them were drug addicts. You know, you know. You see Miles Davis and Lenny Bruce and Pryor and and you name it. You know, uh, you know. And um, and I and you know and I when I lived there, I had I lived there uh, with many different women until I met my wife. But um, but when I was there alone in my office, and I would turn around and I would see a poster of of, like, my, well, now, I'm, I mean, I know some of them now, like the Stones or Malcolm McDowell, I mean, like, you know, from Clockwork Orange. And, yeah. and when I was sitting at the typewriter, I said, This is my family. <laughs> because I didn't have a family, really. I have nephews and nieces and they have children, but I don't see them often. I love them. But my brother and my sister, I don't see much. And my father never saw me perform. My mother's gone, and long and she never understood me at all. So, um, you know, I, it was when guys like Steve Allen or these old-timers would come over and, or the younger comics, like, you know, the Jeffrey Rosses and, mm-hmm. you know, and or Sarah Silverman and Jamie Foxx came over. I remember I, I praised him once. He went, oh, my God. He, I, I would get embarrassed because I don't really know who I am. I don't really, and, and, and I'm not trying to sound, you know, you know, like, you know, begging for compliments here, but... Sometimes I'll I'll go over to some really like Oscar winning comedians and praise them and mean it. And they'll go, Oh my God, I can't believe you're saying this. I go why? You know, I just feel like a fan, really. And then I guess then I realize that they were only in like, you know, ten or twelve when I was on Letterman and they were a blade and watching me. And it's you know it's sort of like I'm an old I'm one of the legend I'm like not a legend but I'm like an old timing timer timer now who's still hip, and they dig that, and that makes me feel cool. You know that's a cool feeling, because I you know I've never settled for doing the same shit, and uh, so that's a good thing. You know I'm boasting, but I mean it's like
2: yeah, but you're not. I mean I don't like- have
1: kids. I have my wife and uh, and, a, and a dog, and my dog is a recovering dog, and apparently dogs that are re- from the streets, uh, they don't like stand-up. Dogs are not a good
2: stand-up audience. No. They don't they don't pay attention. No,
1: even when I feed the dog
2: and do a joke <laughs> they don't laugh. <laughs> Which is basically the way a comedy club works. You feed a bunch yeah. of animals to keep them in their seat and That's then you exactly just quickly right. you try to
1: distract them so they'll, right. they'll, they'll keep eating. Right. Until but, you see someone's finger in the in the salad that one of the Russian chefs cut <laughs> off because they were suicidal. The eh, dog would eat that anyway. But, the dog would eat this. Yeah, they anyway. don't care. They don't care. They'll But but you
2: are I mean you know if you were 30 years old and you were like yeah you know I don't know I guess people really like me that's one thing
1: but you really are I'm 60 fucking 7 it's a joke man you really are though I mean
2: like I, you were the, I, I, I'm exactly the right age to have completely absorbed the comedy boom from like 78 to 92 oh, wow. I watched fucking everything oh far out literally everything every you know Cinemax comedy experiment and Show Showtime special and all of the you know, Caroline's an Evening at the Improv and that Kamikaze shit. and like everything, wow. every everything. I watched The Tonight Show every night. I watched Letterman. Who did you, who do you think, maybe you don't, maybe you don't know or maybe you don't get it, but who do you think cared more about comedy? Do you think, was, was it Dave or Johnny?
1: Oh, that's, that's a good question. I, I think they cared, I think they both cared about comedy, but I think Johnny was a better audience. Because Johnny, like, would prefer to just sit there and laugh. Letterman was also a good interviewer, because I would talk really fast and, um, and sometimes not be clear, and then Letterman would explain what I was saying to the audience, which I really appreciated. Uh, then there are, other, other, there are others through the years that, that were competitive, And, um, uh, but Carson, you know, everyone would probably say that Carson was the best. He was the coolest. He was, uh, you know, for that 90 minutes, there was no one better, you know? I mean, he was, uh, he wanted you to be good. And I had some, I had some, an experience with him once, um, he's supposed to do like about five and a half minutes and they made it really tough on you. You had to tape it and bring it into the, the night show office and play it and, uh, and then they come down and see it it just sucked the joy out of it, it yeah. so I used I had this this bit on the division of motor vehicles and it was five about six minutes not even it was what it was supposed to be and it was a murderously funny j- routine I must say and um, and I'm, I'm there with uh, one of my uh, I didn't get married till I was 57 so there was uh, there was probably a woman with me and I brought uh, uh, my my agents with me and and I go on and it's Carson who's the host and I'm doing stand-up I didn't have a series yet my first series I was successful with was with Jamie Lee Curtis back in the late 80s early 90s and so I am, and usually the audience in Burbank, with all due respect, are touristy and and, <laughs> and pretty square. Like and they're face. distracted by the lights and the band and the cameras
2: and Johnny and.
1: Yeah, and you know, and they had the guys who come out, and they went go crazy when Johnny comes out there. They are not really saying, when Richard Lewis goes out, you just scream out, "We love Jews." You know, not, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So, but you know, they want you to be good. Johnny says the first time on TV, you know, or we you know he's a crazy guy, and uh, I don't do any. That that was supposed to be an impression of Carson. It could have been King Kong. <laughs> but uh, good diction if it was King Kong. Really good diction Excellent diction,
2: diction. <laughs> <laughs> Then I think he would have lived If he had just been saying like Mighty, Hey guys
1: What well, was Mighty Joe Young What was his problem Did he have Was he dyslexic I, I think he was uh, I think He was He was in that That dance hall And they he, They punished him He all.
2: was the Salieri to Kong's Mozart I think He was just <laughs> He was just not He was like Oh he wanted it But Mighty Joe Young Just wasn't the same
1: No he was He had a lot of inferiority He should have gone to my group My uh, My Adlerian th- he was yes he would have
2: had a definitely an inferiority complex and he really but needed he would
1: have had to go to the zoo for the after group
2: well or you would have had to chase him up a building uh like larry david
1: down. he wouldn't have fit into the phone booth. <laughs> so i'm doing the dmv routine on carson and i'm destroying this audience and i'm midway through the routine and i'm saying to myself wow and i always would think this i would always look at like I would visualize apartments like in Iowa or Toronto or ain't London. I go, they're gonna see something that's gonna blow their fucking heads off, because I knew I was killing. Wait till they see this, and I, and I knew that usually with a monologue, if you're doing great in the beginning and you get to kill a shit at the end, you know you you know I knew what was coming up, and I said I'm, this is gonna be one of the great shots ever, okay. So I'm like five and five minutes in. I, I I was in a zone, like Jordan shooting, making fifty points. And the stage manager went under the camera and told me to wrap it up. And I had and Carson's to the twenty feet away from me, and Doc Severinsen and and uh, McMahon and and I had to make one of the toughest decisions in my life. I was only about twenty six. And I said, if I get off now, it's the worst monologue of all time. It makes no sense. I had a a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, it was a monologue. I said, if I finish the monologue, I'll never get the show again, because it's going to go at least 10 minutes. It'll be the longest monologue in history. And I said, but I'd rather kill... I wasn't thinking of them maybe editing it. They and I was edited a couple of times on the Ferguson show. It was sort of shocking to me. Oh, wow. Because I really, I, I really dug doing his show. But I would, came back from CBS, which I think it was CBS, and I told my wife, I destroyed, and I did a couple of monologues. One was on religion. Maybe that was a reason. Oh. And, uh, and I said, what happened to the, you could see the cut, the edit. I go, oh, my God. You know, it wasn't his. No, I'm sure it wasn't Craig. We know we 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 worked similarly, but that was the only time that ever happened. But I wasn't thinking about that. You know, 30 years prior on the Carson show, and um, uh, so I do the whole monologue, and my agents were sort of clueless about this. I walk out, and the famous talent coordinator. Then he's passed on now. He's sort of an angry guy. He said to me, and I killed. It was one of the greatest killing shots. and It really was a killer. I mean, the place went berserk. Uh, he says, and this is like the, the yin and yang of show business. I had the greatest monologue I could ever dream of on a Tonight Show. And yet, as soon as I opened, went behind the curtain, the town coordinator said, you will never do this show again. Oh, fuck. And I mean, I was my, I was tortured. So then I go into my dressing room and I am so depressed. You don't even get to enjoy the killing. At all. And here's, and my, the, 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 the actress, waitress, I was, she didn't, she sort of knew. She was a little sweeter, but my agent went, she, he went, both of them were there. And they went, you did two shows in one. I went, that's the point. <laughs> I did two shows. I felt like saying I felt like killing them, so we go to the Palm. I always used to go to the Palm. I used to love going to the Palm after the tonight show and and I knew I did a great job, but I knew that it was probably the last show ever, and I was young it was like it was it would have been a murderous thing to happen and I look up and I see Carson right across from me and his lawyer, former lawyer, who just wrote a book about him, which is Pretty nasty tell-all. I mean, whether it's true or not, you, you know, it's a, Who knows? But um, at any rate, like Jack Ruby, I darted over to Carson. He, you know, he gets a little nervous, and uh, I'm doing an impression now on radio. <laughs> uh, and I got on my knees, and I and I begged him to understand. I said, I, I I'm sorry. I recognized his, I knew his lawyer, Mr. Bushkin, I'm sorry. I said, Johnny, look, and I knew he liked me. I said, this monologue is five minutes and 38 seconds. I was killing. I'm not an amateur. I'm not going to just, I had a way for the laughs to stop and then go into the next line. I didn't want you to think I didn't know how to be a comedian. And I said, the laughs went on and on. They were so long, I didn't know what to do. I just said, I'm going to do it. And I told him about the guy telling me to stop. I said, I didn't want you to think I didn't know how to write a monologue. That would be the worst thing of all. I'd rather live the rest of my life having you think, I can't go on the show because I'm too funny. That was, that was what I was thinking. That was the decision I made. And, he, and I saw him smile a little bit. And the next day I get a phone call from the talent coordinator. He says, you're a lucky man. <laughs> everything's back to normal had I not run into him I don't think I ever would have gotten this. what an game. incredible oh my god I know it's just unbelievable and how shitty that, that, that the talent coordinator still had to let you know like yeah you, yeah, you still might yeah, you lucky bastard Oh yeah, my god. Well he wasn't wasn't the nicest guy in the world. I wonder generally. if
2: this, this set must be on YouTube somewhere. It must be it must be on well, the internet somewhere. I probably
1: have it on tape somewhere and on my my uh storage. Yeah. But and Leno said to me the next day, he says it was the only time that I saw a guy on TV, they went to commercial and they came back and he was still on. <laughs> oh they didn't cut it? No. Oh wow. Seven minutes. Oh my god. Eleven minutes. But
2: if you're killing the whole time, you know, if like the the point of the uh, show is that it has to be entertaining and it's entertaining. Yeah, but I knocked the uh boy the guy who I knocked off who uh I knocked uh what, was it a guy on like Riptide or something? What yeah, was it? Something like <laughs> yeah.
1: some actor. Who was like, and when I walked out, I was depressed anyway. He went thanks a lot, you know. I went oh fuck you because <laughs> I was so pissed off anyway. <laughs> I didn't
2: give a shit about him. I think you did the right thing. It sounds to me like if you hadn't been killing
1: and you went 11 minutes, that's one thing. Well, but I was if you're in a comic for 13 years already, I knew what I I knew that I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of Johnny Carson. He was the king. Yeah. And I would have. I mean, to stop. But when I saw that guy say, wrap it up, I went, yeah, wrap this up. <laughs> I mean, there was no way. I mean, it, you know, it was really... And then, but one, the first time, my first Tonight Show was was not a good Tonight Show. Uh, and I had to wait six months. They, Johnny put me in, like, in Tonight Show prison. and And I had a real reason for it not being as good as it could be. I had... It was the best material I had after three years. I was on after, no, two and a half years. I was on. That's not. It's pretty fast to get on the Tonight Show. Two and a half years, back then at least. And um, I was. Uh, oh, the guy on the A team. He was. Um, he was the star. And he had, George Pappard. Hey, George, thank you, George Pappard. He had lung cancer, and, I was, and It was an hour and a half show, and I was on like at seven to one. And he was on. He was the middle guest, and he was talking about dying of lung cancer. Oh, and now here's some comedy. Yeah, now the first time on national television, <sighs> the audience is like crying, and I did have a lack of composure. One because I was freaked out, and if I was, at an, and all of a sudden it wasn't. All you should care about as a, as a comedian is that red light, because there are people are watching you in bed and wherever they're watching you. And even if the joke doesn't go over, smile and make it like it's because if you make it look like it's not doing well, it'll look bad. Especially on camera where you're essentially under a microscope. Yes. Oh, they see everything. Just smile. Just smile. But I I, I didn't know. You know, you don't know everything when you're, you're first shot. So. But I felt like it was a nightclub when I was on there because I felt like this audience just saw a bad set from a bad comic. And I had to get the audience. In other words, I was playing to the 250 people, and that's a big mistake when there's 10 million people. Right. And I learned that. I learned my lesson. Um, That was one really important lesson. And I was going... Hey, some guy said something. I went, that's funny. You know, I mean, all of a sudden I'm playing, I'm, I'm at the improv at midnight. <laughs> so uh, Carson wasn't thrilled with my ad-libbing.
2: And you shouldn't have closed with, I I just died like George Pappard's gonna. Like, that was not a good way yeah, to close well, this up I,
1: I don't know how I, cl- I closed with my joke, but um, it was, you know, I had, I was really, it was, it was, it was hard to go back to the nightclubs because all the, everyone was watching and all the clubs in New York, and it wasn't a good set. And, you know, that was my dream. I mean, that was tough to go back and, and, and work on your material, knowing, you know, not knowing when you're going to get back on the show. And then you see all your peers and
2: you're like, oh, they know and I know. And yeah, so we, we no, just- no,
1: it's murder. It's a tough business, man. You know, and the other, the other thing I meant to say before, and it and I took me about 15 years to figure this out, you know, when you're on a show, let's say you're on Dave's show. Dave's a comedian. But, you know, he never considered himself a stand-up. But he, he was very funny in the clubs. And uh, However, um, it's his show. It's Dave's show. I mean, he's leaving it now. But it, it's, it was his show for 30 years or so. And um, he wants to get laughs. He deserves to get laughs. And, and I was always coming from a place where I needed to impress Letterman. It was like he was my family. And I would go there and I'd have in my head like home runs that I knew would get applause in the nightclubs that if I got a chance to say 10 or 15 of them, I'd kill. My goal was to kill the audience and to make Letterman proud of me like he was like the father who never saw me. Big mistake. The deal is to let the star of the show do great. And I did a show where I did about 15 one-liners and they were murderers murderous. Audience went wild. And I go back to the hotel and I get a call from my publicist. They're very unhappy. I go, what? I, you know, I couldn't wait to get down to the bar and have, a, you know, a drink. You know, I was, I figured I, this was one of the great shots. I was, and I'm mentioning, you know, good shots, but they weren't always that great, obviously. But they were upset and I didn't know why. I just didn't know why. And then it hit me. I don't know no one told me. I said, "Wait a minute, I didn't let him talk. He didn't say one thing in in ten in eight minutes. So the next time I came back, I made it a point to feed him like I was the host. let him, and he got and when he was killing, just sit back, laugh I mean, I was funny.
2: What an interesting dynamic to flip his show so that he could be he would be the guest. Wow, but that's so different than Carson because Carson came from the Jack Benny. Yeah, he School. wanted to laugh. He wanted he wanted everyone to be funny on the show.
1: Yeah, you no, know, it was different. But yeah, but 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 it's still if Carson's on a roll, you got to let him be, stay on his. Of role. course. But this was very different because on on Letterman, I for years since that was my show, really, I wanted to kill on everything I said, and I forgot about him, and then I learned. Early, uh, Five or six years in Now wait a minute If if David's killing Let him kill God I wonder what he's gonna do I mean like I, I, Look
2: No matter how sick you are Of doing something Over and over and over again When that's your pattern Every day For 30, 30 years, years Like yeah. what do you You know I, I mean know. It, It's I, I don't know Carson seemed to embrace it But I think I don't know well, I He wonder, left
1: early And he was fairly young When he I left I
2: wonder if Dave's gonna go crazy <laughs> From not having a thing to do, you know that sort of. Reg- well, he
1: produces shows, but it has nothing to do with sitting there. Yeah, you yeah. know, sometimes you get the feeling with Dave that he doesn't enjoy it, but he has to. He would quit. He would have quit way before. It's not I mean, about. Money. I don't know if he. Look,
2: I, I don't know him. I've never done the Letterman show, which is a bummer because I. And now it's <laughs> going to be too late. But I think, my, as an audience member, it feels like he's not really that into it, and he hasn't been for a while. Of course, I don't know him, but I think if anything, it seems like. He needs the process of it. And I think, you know, I'm just guessing. It seems, re- it seems coincidental that it, it was not that long after Leno announced that he was leaving. And then a few months later, Letterman's like, okay, I'm done. It almost felt like I, I won the race. <laughs> all right. But, but who, mean, knows? Who, who knows? Who
1: knows? You just don't know. You know, and they're all, and they're all very different. You know, uh, I think the most fun I've ever had on any show... Generally speaking, it was with, with John Stewart, mm-hmm. who I introduced on an HBO special. And uh, Oh,
2: the Young Comedian. It was the one of the Young Comedian specials, yeah.
1: yeah. And um, he was a real fan, I mean, a big fan. And uh, w- when I would go in to the Daily Show, uh, he would never ask me anything. No one would ask me anything, it would just be free fall. It was sort of like Ferguson. Ferguson was that way too. That was really a rare thing, but um, that was cool. But on the Daily Show, which was such a big show, uh, just to be able to say anything you wanted without him caring or knowing, it was just really a blast. I really miss doing that show. Well, you know,
2: he trusted you as a performer, and he probably enjoyed being surprised by whatever it was that you were going to like. Yeah, like, I as guess in, a lot. if he's a fan of yours. He's even though he's hosting the show, he's going to be watching you like an audience member. Like, he gets a front row seat.
1: In a way, I guess, yeah. I mean, I've, it's it's sort of scary talking to you about, you're really bright and funny and intelligent and all of the rest, but, you know, to be this old and to have done this for 45 years, it is sort of spooky knowing that I'm, you know, in the third act of this. And and when you mentioned about Letterman, it's like, whoa, you know, I got him in good health and everything, but, you know... And I'm in a show, and and all this and that, and it's all cool, but, you know, I can't imagine not going on stage again, unless I'm sick. I mean... I mean, you don't have to, though. You can can perform as long as you want. Yeah, I know, but, I mean, not to go on stage, I mean, as frightening as it is to hear my name, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Lewis, because I don't know what I'm going to say, I still need it. And not to have that... uh, not to have that fear in my life, <laughs> so stupid to say, not to feel that, that you know, not to know that tonight, you know, you know it's four o'clock and, um, and I'm going to be going on in, th- in four hours or whatever it is. It's like, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, you got to quit sometime. Yeah, I Most mean, people, you know, they quit, they become actors or they do direct TV shows and all that shit. I think shit. you quit when you...
2: I th- I think it doesn't matter how old you are. I think I think comedy is kind of a hungry man's game. And if you're hungry until you're 95, then great. Joan was, right? You know, Mel Brooks is still that way. Right? right. You know, oh, I mean, my God. You know, it's like it, it doesn't. I think I think a lot of if people. If you're hungry, yeah. if you're hungry, but I think at a certain point, a lot of guys are just like, ah, I just don't. I don't need it. And they're comfortable, and they don't really, you know, the grind and the amount of energy that. It, but if you're if you're hungry for hundred years, then you can perform for hundred years. I think that's all. You know, it's really
1: something too when you, if you quit, audiences don't. They people will see you on the street, gee, I haven't seen you in a long time, and I feel like saying, well, you saw me for fifty years. Is not <laughs> enough, asshole. <laughs> you know, it really. There was, I'll never forget that. I was in an airport, and it was one of these days I had a special on a, a dramatic movie. I had a book out. I was like one of these hot months. Okay, and I was on three talk shows, and it was like really my wife was was flying with me, and it was really one of those great three or four weeks. And there was a woman, and I was at her airport waiting for our flight, and um we we're at a cafe and uh and I went to get a bagel. And this woman says to me, She says, Richard Lewis, right? And I go, Yeah, uh, how are you? She says, you're never on anything anymore. <laughs> and I go, well, you know, it doesn't mean you're not watching the right channel, but perhaps that's really where it's at because I've never been busier in my life. And she said to me, that's not true. You don't do a thing anymore. I said, no, no, no. This is probably the, the high point of my career. She says, no, you're lying to me. You're You're done. And I, I said, hold on a minute. I said, Joyce, you got to come over here. And I said, this is my wife. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, well, no, I mean, because I'm, I'm done, you know. I have a gorgeous wife. And she says, uh, your husband's finished, isn't he? It was... the most That's un- so
2: strange.
1: It was the strangest thing. Usually people just do that anonymously on the internet. I mean, it's impressive that someone would actually do that in person. Yeah. The best time that it, when I was not recognized was that I kept going past a, red, uh, a, a stop sign near my, in my neighborhood. Without stopping, I would just go through it. And I got stopped six days in a row and the cop thought i was richard Bells. Oh no. <laughs> he went Bells. <laughs> bells. And because i, you know, bells played the cop, yeah. He gave me he says, "I'm going to give you a break, but bells, come on. You six days in a row. The cop is always hiding. I always forgot. And i and he ah! "Bells." <laughs> and i finally the seventh time i went Give me the fucking ticket. I'm Richard Lewis. <laughs> Did he give me the <laughs> I ticket? I couldn't, yes. I couldn't take it. I was fucking pissed off. I'm not Belzer. I'm Richard Lewis. I don't want to be, uh, I'd rather go to jail and be known for who I am. You know, I,
2: I think a lot of it also has to do with why people do it and if people do it cuz they want to get rich then the second they're rich they don't have to do it anymore if they want to do it to get famous and they're famous it's like well they achieved that oh goal. i never did it for f- if well if, if your uh, goal is to... just to if your goal is just to do comedy express myself then that's never going to go away probably not so yeah, I mean, I, I it doesn't seem like you have anything to worry about. But then again, if you don't worry, then you don't try harder. It's like that fire, you know. You gotta have a little bit of that fire all the time. Yeah.
1: Well, and I don't know what if I had if I had if I did the same act, I wouldn't have. I would been. I would have quit a long time ago.
2: Oh well, let me ask you this: Were you worried? This might be a dumb question, but when you finally met the woman that you married, right? And obviously you love her and you're very happy with her. It's a good marriage. Was there anything where you where you thought, Oh shit. Well if I get too comfortable am I not gonna be a comic I mean like is it's gonna take away from no,
1: because I'm a basket case and you know and uh, the marriage has is fraught with insanity. Oh good. Well that's good for comics. Oh it's phenomenal. <laughs> but we get but we understand it. We understand it. I mean she understands she appreciates my eccentricities. And I always needed that. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I didn't, you know, I met her in her early 40s. And uh, so she was younger than me, but she wasn't like, you know, as I used to say, she didn't think, uh, what was, what did I say, Serpico was a cheese. <laughs> so, I mean, she, you know, she understood things. And I always, you know, was with people, you know, 20, 50, 20 years younger than me, and I couldn't, you know, it was all bullshit i mean i mean they were smart some of them were were not were smart but crazy you're better when you don't do drugs you be- drink more you know <laughs> you know actually it was the reverse no no don't you know dr- when you drink you get angry when you when you, ecstasy is better you know it was no i found somebody who was she's not an addict but um she never saw me drink so that's sort of cool
2: yeah so My, she didn't know you was that
1: guy. No, she no But she, when I was doing a series with Jamie Lee Curtis, she was asked if she wanted to go out with me, and she said he's too nuts. So we probably would have had a family. Had you know, but she probably would have thrown me in rehab, knowing her. But you know what? You you, you can't go back. You know, I met her at the right time. You know, so it was cool.
2: I think a lot of the walls that get built are ones that people just invent. You know, like in terms of the the, walls, the walls for like, oh, I can't perform if or I can't do this or I'm not going to be funny anymore. If this or, you know, like I feel like people create a lot of their. But I think if you just shut up and keep doing it, then it's
1: fine, you know, without thinking too much.
2: about it. Yeah, because when you think too much about it, you just get in your own way. And that's the voice that says, like, well, this isn't funny. You might not be funny anymore. Why are you still doing this? Why are you, you know, it's just gonna, yeah.
1: it's just like if you just can just
2: get if you can just get out, ignore that and get that out of the way. Well, the greatest
1: no. negative voice I ever had, and I've said this before, but when I was my first Tonight Show, I was uh, I auditioned out here, flew in from New York, and uh, I got the show, and I was staying at some cheap motel on Sunset Strip, and I called my mother. Uh, And I said, Mom, I'm going to be on Johnny a week from Thursday. And she said, who else is on? (laughs) Jesus Christ. That's pretty much a reason to go to the (laughs) Roxy and get loaded. (laughs) I mean, really, it just doesn't get much worse than that. No, no. but That's pretty fucked up. It is fucked up. Because she didn't think... I don't, you know what? I'm not going to analyze now. I'd rather hope she's her soul. If there is a soul, she's floating around and not watching me.
2: Do you think... It, would you have wanted her to be any different way if
1: it would have made you... Would it, I wouldn't have been as... Right. If I'm good, I would never have been as good.
2: Maybe. Do
1: you, I mean, do you think I that that know. made... You know,
2: or would you, oh, would no, you have no. taken your chances and wanted it to be...
1: I don't think I even would have been driven to go on stage if I had parents that were more there for me and loving. Yeah. I, I just... I had a fucked up upbringing. You know, I was alone, and I needed an audience. I really did. I mean, I, I there's no way that I would have been... Whoever I became, I never would have, If I was good, I wouldn't have been as good. You know, it's just no doubt in my mind. If I had a loving... Loving family... And I had, you know, there was some love there, but I'm just saying, it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't abused, but I wasn't appreciated. Yeah. I was like um, left to my own devices, and uh, that didn't work out too well for a long time. So, uh, no, I think that it was good for me, ultimately, that uh, the family sucked.
2: (laughs) And then when you finally figured out, oh, this audience thing is obviously I'm trying to piecemeal a family, then at that point did you find a different reason to go on stage? Do you think, or do you think it was still the same? Once I was. Once you sort of figured out, like, oh, I'm looking for, you know, the thing that the family didn't no, provide. No, it
1: fed it. It fed the monster. The more I the more I got laughs, the more I realized, the, the darker I got. Yeah. I, I, it gave me more courage. This is, this is really a funny story. I just thought of it. I don't know if we ever have time, but I was... Uh, I did Carnegie hall in eighty nine in December, and I get a call from my agent saying there's a lot of money for an hour' show in the in the Catskills and now I never played the Catskills that was not for me that was like three thousand people eating food right and children and it would have been the way you know so I say, oh god and i was I wasn't sober then either. And but the money was so huge for an hour, I just said, "God, how can I really pass on this?" You know, I, I, the Carnegie Hall was a huge success. So I got a limo, a model, four <laughs> friends, champagne. I tell the driver, "Keep the engine running. keep it running." I knew it was going to be a nightmare. I had no idea what nightmare this would be. They say, ladies and gentlemen, this is like a week after, like you know, two and a half hours, two standing, you know, Carnegie Hall. Yeah. So I was still feeling that way, but I knew that I was in a bad. you know, I think it was Seinfeld said, "There's not such thing as a bad audience." That's bullshit. You know, if you do a corporate gig at a Klansman rally, at least for me, (laughs) it's a bad audience. Bad. (laughs) Not turning them around. (laughs) So, um, ladies and gentlemen, Rich and I'm walking and I'm seeing 3,000 people, and it's not so much about Jews and eating and all that, but it had a lot to do with why it hurt. Because when I heard, when I said, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Lewis, and I heard no applause. Oh, yeah, you know. No applause except 3,000 people saying, I didn't get (laughs) pears. That's a lot of people saying things like that. Give me my like, don't don't suck on my spoon. It was so I didn't get one laugh. And I had the check in my pocket, a big check, and I said to the audience, I looked at my watch, I went, I have twenty two minutes to go, and I'm gonna finish. Because I did not want to give the money back. There's no way. And um I finished, I got off, and I got off to I want my pears. It was the same thing, <laughs> and uh, I go back to this suite that looked like my grandmother's house in, uh, Florida, in uh, Brooklyn. It was like an older hotel, you know, the is or the guy. It was the Concord, I think, and, and I don't think it's there anymore. And um, I get a note from the owner's son, who was a big fan of mine. And he sent me. He didn't know that I would be gone in him, and He sent me a bottle of uh, great champagne. With a, but the, it was the note that really mattered. He says, "You can't be all things to all people." Oh my God! How insightful! Beautiful. It's a great note. So we go into the we go into the, the to the, the stretch, and we go back to Manhattan. I got the bread. I st- you still feel like shit when you bomb, but that note meant a lot to me. You know. And something happened that really—I'll mention it. I don't like talking about people that have passed on, but it, it was something that—that that he made up for it. The, he passed on. He used to—he um, was married to Liza Minnelli. He was a pianist, a very, really terrific. Marvin man. Hamlish? No, 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 it wasn't Marvin Hamlish. He was a pianist, and um, he was one of her three or four mar- uh, husbands, and he was. He played lounges and he, uh, the Carlisle and um, all these places, and he was really great. And he was there to play the night after me. And someone, oh, and my uncle who I had, who was divorced when I was when I was eight, I hadn't seen. He was at the gig that I was there when I bombed, and he told these people he must have been in his sixties at the time probably, and he said. That's my nephew. Of course, I hadn't seen him in a long, long time. And when I bombed, he told me this because I had seen him. His his he lived till he was ninety eight, and his, and my cousin brought him out to live in California. It was beautiful. And he told me, he says, you know, after you bombed, he told the people, I think he's my nephew. <laughs> Which I I said that's fucking great. I wish I would have used that on. It. So. <laughs> Uh, what's this guy's name I can't think of it, it doesn't matter he was he's a Peter knight Allen? Peter Allen yeah Peter Allen <laughs> terrific performer he saw the show and I had a friend who called me the next a week or two a month later he said you know Peter Allen came on and he was great yeah. you now he killed you know that's that's what you do with the, either a Borscht Belt comic or you're a singer and Peter Allen came on and the first thing he said is God, I hope I do better than Richard Lewis. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, really. So about three years later, I'm at the Four Seasons, going over some notes, and I see him. I go, hi, Peter. Hi, Richard. I go, "Can you come here a minute? And I sit him down, and I said, I got to tell you something, man. I said, I've been, at the time, I said, I've been a comedian for a quarter of a century. And I said, uh... I played the Concord the night after the week after I sold out Carnegie Hall and I've had a really good run. I'm in a series now with Jamie Lee Curtis and I had a bad night. And you come out and you had a you couldn't just do your show. You had to bring that back to the attention of those of those people. I go, what gives you the balls to do that, man? This is a tough enough business. I was really angry. And he just got on his knees. Well, I mean, he got on his knees, but <laughs> that's where it ended. But he, he apologized profusely, you know, and he realized he was almost crying. Oh, he real. I mean, I, but I, I, I really felt badly. I, I said, you know, this is a tough fucking business we're in. I don't you know, we, you know, you don't have to make it harder on my I felt horrible that night. Why, why bring it up? Do your show, man. Did you feel better after you knew that he felt bad about it? I felt great about it because I knew that I was right. And he, I mean, he could have gone the other way, like go fuck yourself, you know, but he says, you know, you're right. I, I had no right doing that. And I feel horrible about it. I said, well, you know, don't beat yourself up, but I really, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to tell you because I, you know, I was looking for you. It was like a bad Western on television. You know, the guy with the one arm, the one arm bandit, you know, the one arm guy looking for the doctor. You know, I mean, I would have I was looking for this guy for like 10 years. Do you only is
2: are you only as happy as your most recent show? Was it hard for you? Okay, no
1: more. Back in the old days, yeah. Oh God, you wear it like a cloak, like Igmar Bergman's store on Melrose.
2: Like you could, like if you were doing a weekend at a club, you can have five great shows. But if your sixth show isn't that great, you leave going, "Oh my
1: God, what am I doing? God, you walk. God, (laughs) you go to the airport wearing an Abe Lincoln beard." (laughs) <laughs> God, you feel like shit. What about those other I know, but the last one, that's the residue I'm leaving with. It's that last show. You know, I actually I actually after 43 years, uh I didn't have a breakdown, but I had a I was not treated very well at a at a uh at a corporate gig. And this was like a month after I got one of the greatest reviews of my life in Chicago from a jazz critic. And, uh, but I hadn't slept in three days and that in combination with no, with being treated, missing the car to the gig, 20 degrees, not knowing how I was going to get to the gig, waiting three hours to go on, meet and greet, photographs. Uh, I, they introduced me and I was having like an out of body experience and I, it was the scariest gig I've ever had. I went, and I knew that I had, if I didn't stop, I mean, the, the show was horrible. And it was an interesting story because I got reviewed. You never get reviewed for a corporate gig.
2: Oh, that is weird.
1: And I read the review, and the review was written beautifully. And he says, Rulis was a raving lunatic. And I was. I couldn't, and I was calling my wife. They put me down in a locker room. For two hours to wait for this uh, opening act, and I read the review when I came home, and I called the guy, and I didn't. And everyone said, "Forget it, man. You know it's one show." I said, "No, I can't forget this. I, you know, it wasn't fair. I I had I didn't sleep for three days. I tore my rotator lifting a. a it happened when I was there. Uh, I couldn't see straight. It wasn't, a, and it wasn't, I wasn't in my, I wasn't in, it wasn't a good, I wasn't in a good place. And I, and I felt, you know, you want to apologize to people, you know, I mean, I'm a people pleaser. It's a bad thing to be a people pleaser and a stand up you know, you just, you're just not going to please everybody. Yeah, it's you know? a bad thing. It's a bad thing to be a people pleaser at the in expense general, of
2: your own happiness.
1: Absolutely. So. I called, I, I, I didn't care what my publisher said, my wife. I said, I called the newspaper and I said, because I, I saw the name of the guy. I went, Hi, this is Richard Lewis. He says, Richard Lewis, Richard Lewis? And I go, Yeah. Comedian. He went, I'm like, Wow, well, you, you're right. I go, I'm mm, fine. I said, You know, I've never called a critic in my entire life, but I had to call you. And I told him, I said, Let me just tell you something. First of all, I have never been reviewed at a corporate gig, which are normally nightmares. They are. They're, usually, they're not run well. They're just they're horrible. You get a lot of money, but it's not worth it. Right. And, um, and I said, your review was written beautifully, and you were dead right. But let me tell you what I went through. And I told I said, well, you were you listening? He said, yes. I said, and I'm not calling for another story. I beg of you not to do this do not write we, i want this is off the record but i want you to know cuz you're a good writer that you were that you judged my 39 minutes after 43 years based on this and when i told him the guy went oh my god how how did I Why did I do it? I mean It was the same thing <laughs> You know Those are the only two times That I really felt I needed I told you know That singer And I yeah. told this critic I said first of all uh, You know I felt I was pissed at you For you know What about the 40 years Of the success I had So I had a bad gig And I you know Granted I was a madman And here's why I didn't sleep for 72 hours I had a torn rotator And I was in a gym looking at pictures of dead presidents of the Jewish center. (laughs) I mean, give me a fucking break. (laughs) You know, the guy started, you know, he he didn't laugh because he felt, you know, but I felt better when I hung up. Well, that's good. Yeah. Sometimes you got to do these things. You know, people will tell you agents, you know, wives, girlfriends, you name it, you know, don't do it. You know, and sometimes they're right. You should just let it go and just work on the next show. But. Sometimes uh, you know I take things so seriously. If I feel that I'm getting fucked over uh, in a way that's not fair, I, it's hard for me to let it go. Is that just me? Well, I think it's important
2: to it, it's important to be heard, and it's important to feel understood. You know, it's important to feel understood. And when you feel like someone is judging you without all the facts, they don't understand you. It's there feels like feels like there's something that's not in balance, and so when you can say. And if the guy had said, "Well, go fuck yourself," then you can go. Well, at least I expressed how I felt, and you probably would have still felt okay, right. you know. Right. But I think it's important to try to to try to get understanding, especially when it's something that you care about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree one hundred percent. I re- I really do. You uh, this book? Uh, yeah, I know. I've been. I feel like i I think I've ruined your Paris vacation. I've been here so you, long. You
2: you haven't ruined anything. I mean, I honestly. It's so wonderful to hear you talk, and it's so, it's so great to hear someone who's been doing stand-up for 45 years that still gives a shit about actually just getting up and performing. Like It, it makes me – you know, it's, it's still – it continues – I think it continues to inspire people. Well, that's very nice of you to and say. And it's nice because you really do care about the craft of it, and it, it seems like that's, the, that's your main focus, that's and all, all the ma- other stuff that's doesn't. That's
1: all that matters, and then if you get a break, you get, then you're ready. That's it, man, you know. I'll, I'll be brief. I, I, uh, I have an artist friend who I've been a patron to, and so has Larry David, called Nicholas de Tolo. He's a New York artist, and he's brilliant. And, um, and I came up with an idea of coming up with dark thoughts. I'm, this is not to be grandiose, but there was a book similar, I didn't know this, that Edgar Allan Poe would write, like, uh, a couple of lines, and Edward Manet, this French impressionist, would write, would illustrate it. So I, I would give him 10 or 12 thoughts. He picked one that would inspire him. So we wound up with a book called Reflections from Hell. It's a guide on how not to live, that sort of a little, you know, kind thing. Uh, make a joke out of it, but uh, but the illustrations are amazing. The guy's a genius, and um, so I'm proud that I have a book with Mr. Totolo, and um, and also this year I got a. We just wrapped a series uh, on stars, which starts this summer with Sir Patrick uh, Stewart, uh, who is uh, who plays this drugged out, horrible father news, uh, pro, uh, real progressive news guy and I'm the uh, network psychiatrist so and I try to help this crazy network try to stay on the air me <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's cool as an I like acting and uh you know so it's like I'm really going against type way against type you know, well, that's and, acting. That's good. Yeah. So the book is cool. The book comes out on the fifth of May, and this and the show starts in the summer. So it's a good time. And I'll go on. I'm be on tour. I'm going to be in New York and Chicago in May. So everything's cool. Where are you playing in New York? Carolines at the end of the month. Nice. and play, I've been playing Zany's um, in Chicago. The dance thirty five years. Yeah. It's a and, fun club. Oh, it's a great club. I mean, I've I've done a lot of specials in the theaters there, but. But there's nothing like when they're that little club downtown on Wall Street, they're right on top of you and
2: Oh yeah, the the stage is a
1: bar. Yeah. If you screw up, <laughs> they're you know, they're like vampire bats.
2: Yeah. It's over. There's there's probably a picture of you on the wall there from 1982 there or something. It's
1: pretty scary. It's like a daglow <laughs> picture of me. I thought I was doing drugs again when I saw it. The one in Nashville, the Zanies in Nashville is the
2: same. It's like it's like guys that you grew up watching where they were fucking kids in their headshot. You
1: know. Yeah, I know. There's one with an umbilical cord of me in one club <laughs> in Brooklyn. <laughs> It's been a real a real honor oh, to do. Oh please, to of course. Uh, it's amazing to talk
2: to you and I and I really hope you come back sometime and you know, if you if you're doing spots around town just for fun,
1: you oh, know. Oh, that that's very by the way, the Mc, Michael McEwen is a is an old buddy of mine and that that show you did with him was just spectacular. Oh, thank you. He's really a genius. I consider him a genius and um I'm so happy he got that role, you know, on the uh, on, Saul? on Saul. Yeah. He's brilliant in it. He's he's really and and now and people should go back and go on YouTube and and see the uh, the improv group he was in with you know when he was with those that guy on uh, that famous show. Uh, what, Laverne and Shirley, David yeah, Lander. Yeah, and but he was with David and him. What was the name of the the group he was with? The three it was the three of them. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I, we talked about. And it. And it was we... with what's his name? That genius, that the guy who uh, who does that show every sun la show. Oh yeah, Harry Sher. The three of them. Yeah. They were amazing and there's an album that, that you can get and you, sh- you can listen, get it on YouTube or get it on iTunes. It doesn't get much better. I mean, like, they're like SCTV, those guys, you know, they're just amazing. It's guys. on
2: McKean's um, Wikipedia page. Yeah, it would be. Uh, what's it called? Oh, uh, the, uh, it was the credibility gap.
1: Credibility gap. Oh, man. The credibility Doesn't gap. Doesn't get much better. These guys, they're, they're really brilliant. They're
2: yeah, really brilliant. and so nice. It still freaks me out every once in a while. He'll include me in a tweet, and I'll be like, Jesus Christ. Like, it still, I know, flips,
1: great? It still flips me
2: out. No, no, that's really great. Um, but it's good to see you. And no, no thanks for having me. Please.
1: Eh? It was a pleasure.
2: Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone.
0: Now leaving Nerdist.com. No murder, no suicide, <laughs> and best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting
1: for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery.